gracious and loving God, creator and sustainer of life, we give you thanks for the many blessings that you have given us. We thank you for the gift of life that has enabled us to wake up this morning and come together to worship you. Whether we're able to physically walk into this sanctuary or connect online. We thank you for the loving relationships that you have guided us toward and helped us nurture. And we thank you for your guiding presence in our lives that gives us peace as we go about our daily activities. Loving God, we also seek your help as we struggle with the challenges that we are encountering or that we see others encounter in the world around us. We pray for those of us who are dealing with food or housing insecurities. Grant us the strength to walk on the path of loving compassion for others, despite our frustration at being ignored by many who see us in need, yet ignore us. And for those of us who have been blessed with more than we need, open our eyes and our hearts so that we may help those and lead us toward the means of providing effective physical, emotional, and spiritual support that will make a lasting impact on our brothers and sisters who are struggling. Lord, in your mercy. Yes. We pray for those of us who are suffering, who are suffering from mental or physical illnesses today. Ease our pain and restore us to a healthy state of being where we can participate in life more fully. Inspire those who are treating our conditions so that they will be able to provide effective treatment and grant patience to our caregivers who assist us in our basic daily needs. We thank you for their presence in our lives and we, for those of us who are dealing with conditions that will not likely, we will not likely recover from. Grant us your peace as we prepare to enter your kingdom. Lord, in your mercy. We pray for our nation as we deal with the issues of abortion in light of the recent Supreme Court decision to overturn previous rulings that granted women and families the option to seek professional care for abortion procedures if necessary. While we are grateful for the lives saved in cases where abortion was used as a means of birth control, it is unfortunate that our legal and political systems have sought to remove the possibility of using this procedure in all circumstances, even when thoughtful discernment may conclude it is necessary. In the spirit of our United Methodist tradition to do no harm, we regret the political forces are doing harm to certain demographics of our society that will have to endure the unforeseen consequences of this Supreme Court decision. Almighty God, grant us patience as we discuss this important issue, the wisdom to pursue the right course of action, the right course of action as a nation, and the strength to follow through on those activities that lead to abundant love and life for all your children. Lord, in your mercy. We pray for those who are suffering from the consequences of violence in our local communities, in our homes, and around the world. Grant them a reprieve from the mental and physical pain and make them aware of your loving presence 
Soften the hearts of those who seek control and gratification through violence so that they will recognize their sins and repent from their harmful actions. Inspire compassion, foster healing, and lead us all into a place of peace where your love reigns. Lord, in your mercy. Loving God, these things we ask in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and power, and the glory forever. Amen. Standard Version, the updated edition. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for his arrival, but they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and he rebuked them. Then they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in prayer? Our ever-loving God, instill your message in our hearts today. Open us all to be aware of what you would have us to know. Fill our hearts with the message and the love and the mission you would have us share. 
through our study of your word today. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. People are not always very good at predicting the future. I had a running joke with Pastor Michael Bryant when he was here about when I was ordained a deacon. I was given a special cross and I was given authority to preach. I was not handed a crystal ball. Bishop wasn't handing those out the day I was ordained. And when Mike was commissioned a couple weeks ago, they didn't give you a crystal ball, did they? Yeah. No. Seems to be missing from the process. Yet sometimes we feel like the world, the congregation, individuals think we have it anyway. I was in the hospital last week. Why didn't anybody come visit me? Nobody called the church and told us. <laughs> How come we didn't plan ahead for that flood that took out the carpet in the hallway? How do you know the woman's going to suddenly spring a leak on a week nobody's in the office? And these are, these are general examples. I'm not talking about specific situations, although you might be able to think of some. It just doesn't work that way. I try to do that in my personal life too. I sometimes use trying to predict things as a way to get past my own pessimism sometimes. A current example is my husband and I are getting ready to trade in the car that we've been leasing for two years and try to get a newer model. And when it didn't go exactly like we hoped the first time, I started coming up with all this long list of other things that were probably going to go wrong along the way. My husband got tired of hearing it, and I got the idea I ought to keep it to myself. So I did. I made a running list. I said, okay, when all is said and done, and we've either gotten the new car, or we end up keeping this one, or whatever, when it's finished, then you can see my list and we'll see how right I was. <laughs> like I say, I'm probably being overly pessimistic, and hopefully there won't be very many to check off on that list. But I try to predict things, and I'm not often right, thankfully, when I'm being pessimistic. But we all tend to do that, as people and as a society. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit the United States back in March 2020, we said, oh, we'll close the church office for a few weeks, we'll work from home, and we'll... We'll just send out email worship for a little while, and we'll be fine, then we'll be right back. We thought we'd be back by Easter that year, 2020. Well, we were back by Easter, 2021. It just didn't turn out the way we predicted. But our vision of a quick end to the pandemic was not the worst prediction of all time. All throughout history, people have tried to make predictions about what the next step would be, what would be good or what would be bad, and they've made poor assessments. In a Washington Post column, the author John Kelly listed a number of really bad predictions that had happened over time. For example, in the year 1846, a royal committee was gathered in Spain. They said it would be wrong for the king and queen to provide funding for an Italian explorer named Christopher Columbus. The committee members insisted that sailing to Asia would take a ridiculously long three years, and why would anyone want to spend that much time on a boat? They thought there was nothing worth seeing between Europe and Asia but a bunch of water. Don't do it, they advised. But the king and queen decided to fund Columbus anyway. And as we know, there was a whole lot more than ocean. Here we sit. And we can argue that that was a terrible day for some people. It led to globalization and colonization and the destruction of the people that were already on the continent. But no matter how you look at it, you have to say there certainly was something worth sailing those, all those months for. It was certainly worth arriving here just to discover the resources and the good that has been brought to the world. The value of land, though, can be tough to predict. Nearly 400 years after the journey of Columbus, a congressman from New York named Orange Ferris couldn't believe that the United States would be willing to pay Russia a whole $7 million for the Alaska territories. 
It might have seemed like a lot of money, but it was a good deal, just two cents per acre. And where would all of our cruise lines go today if there wasn't that beautiful Alaska coastline? Well, in the Gospel of Luke, we run across some predictions, some good and some bad. Jesus knows where exactly where he needs to go as he sets his face toward Jerusalem. The importance of that city and Jesus' ministry is very clear to Jesus. But confusion arises among his disciples and his followers on the way to Jerusalem. And they rely on their prior experience and understanding to try to, try to, try to predict what Jesus' ministry is going to be or their involvement in it. First, we hear the two disciples enter the village of Samaria and attempt to arrange some hospitality. But the Samaritans didn't want Jesus there because they knew he was headed to Jerusalem. So James and John were not happy with the Samaritans and predicting what they thought would be Jesus, or after all, any sensible person's reaction to the situation. They said, do you want us to command down fire and get rid of Samaria for not welcoming you? They are convinced that this is what Jesus would want because the town, after all, was rude and unwelcoming. But this prediction by James and John was problematic. Jesus is not interested in the destruction of the Samaritans. So he turns to James and John and he lets them know he doesn't approve of what they've just suggested. Then the disciples and Jesus move on to another village. Now the disciples' reaction this way, wanting to burn down the city, unfortunately wasn't unique, nor was it the last time it happened in the history of Jesus' followers. A desire to use violence in the name of God continues in the world. In the Spanish Inquisition, Christians used imprisonment and execution to combat things they saw as heresy, words that weren't true or against God. In the European witch trials, flogging and exile were common punishments. And even today, as we well know, Christians can be guilty of using violence against other members of other religions, or I think even more often, members of the same religion that just happen to have different points of view than they do. Christians tend to attack each other and other people all the time, claiming it's in the name of God. And unfortunately, we sometimes have the habit of using the Bible as our weapon when we do it. That wasn't what Jesus was advocating on the road to Jerusalem all those decades and centuries ago. Researchers have often found that violence is driven by negative emotions, such as anger or fear. James and John were angry at the Samaritans who were rejecting Jesus, but it could also be that they were fearful that if this was happening here, would it continue to happen? That fear, it turned out, was a more reasoned, more probable prediction. Aggression isn't just about, I'm angry and I want to hit someone. It can also be, it feels good to get revenge on somebody. This is not what Jesus is about. The kingdom of God is not one of seeking revenge. Your anger might be righteous, but Jesus is not interested in using it to carry forth utter destruction. Now we come to a passage in Luke where we hear about three followers that approached Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. And I admit this passage has always made me a bit uncomfortable. If you really listen to it, I, my thought is, as a teenager when I heard this passage, and even sometimes today is, well, Jesus sure is being mean to these people that just want to follow around and be with them. They can't say goodbye to their loved ones. They can't take care of outstanding business. But let's unpack these one by one because scholars have pointed out there's a common thread between them. As Jesus and the disciples are going along the road to Jerusalem, a person says, I will follow you wherever you go. Sounds like a very noble thought, but Jesus turns to this person and says, foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So maybe this person said, gee, I really like to sleep in my own bed at night. 
Is he saying that we just don't have anywhere to stay at all? At this point, it seems like that follower slips away and heads home. We never hear about the person again. So then we have another disciple, and, Jesus, and that person, Jesus actually goes to that person, approaches the person first, and says, follow me. But the man says, first let me go and bury my father. And at first it seems like a reasonable request, doesn't it? We bury our own dead to this day, or permit and honor them in some way. The Ten Commandments say, honor thy mother and father, and this man wanted to bury his father. But Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. The grieving man doesn't know how to respond, so it seems like he too just wanders away, or maybe goes to take care of the funeral arrangements. Finally, a third potential follower comes and says, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those in my home. Again, it seems like a reasonable request. If he doesn't, are his loved ones just going to think he vanished into thin air or that something terrible happened to him? If he just walks away right now and leaves town? He just wants to let people know where he's going, right? But Jesus said, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The request of that third follower is also immediately denied. So what was wrong with the request these people made? Or what is the common thread? What's the lesson we can take from the gospel reading and these tough sayings of Jesus? Well, the first man perhaps envisions a place to rest. Maybe he thinks he knows what following Jesus around would be like. And maybe he thinks it's a glamour trip. Maybe he thinks because crowds look for and celebrate Jesus that he gets offered all the best places to stay and the disciples too. And we certainly see some scripture passages where that seems to be true. He eats with rich tax collectors after all. But that's not really what his mission is about. So this man predicting that it's, oh, it's going to be a life of glory and lush accommodations was something Jesus needed to discourage. The second one assumes he's going to be able to take care of funeral plans. That he's just going to go about life as usual and nothing will change. And you have to wonder if he was just kind of sitting around and Jesus says to him, follow me, seeing somebody who looks like he's free and able to pick up everything and go. And then the man says, oh, I need to bury my father. Why hasn't that been taken care of already? It almost seems like the man's offering an excuse to dawdle and delay. That could be what it was. Or it could just be saying that even the most basic things that you think you can predict are really conveniences. And if the kingdom of God is asking you to do something urgent and immediate, you need to do it now. And then the third one. The third one is anticipating a, cha a chance to say goodbye to his family, to let them know his whereabouts. These all seem like reasonable expectations, so why does Jesus consider them problematic? All three of these potential disciples fail to see that a future with Jesus is just different from the past. They can't imagine a time, a time in which they're not going to have a bed to sleep in, or the opportunity to go to a memorial service, or the chance to visit with their family. They're like somebody who wrote about airplanes back in 1904. In the issue of Popular Science Monthly, the letter writer said the machines will eventually be fast. They will be used in sport, but they're not to be thought of as commercial carriers. Planes would not be commercial characters. What a wrong prediction. Now people take roughly 100,000 flights around the globe every single day. So what are we to do with all these things then, with knowing what to do with the kingdom of God, if there aren't predictions that we can count on? How do we bring that into reality around the globe? What do we do with it? We know that in Christ's sacrificial love, we're called to a life of openness and service. And that even if we can't look forward to something predictable and easy, we can look forward to serving God in a myriad of ways. Jesus is calling the followers to a new way of life, 
one that's hard to predict with accuracy. In the next chapter of Luke, the passage after what we heard today, Jesus gives 70 followers a set of commands, telling them to go out to the world, carry no purse, no bag, no sandals. But they're to go out into the world completely unprepared. Wherever you, they go to a house, they're to say peace to this house. Perhaps, in other words, to be content with wherever God sends them, whether it's fancy or humble. Eat whatever is set before you, cure the sick, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. When Jesus looks into the future, he sees this future coming near. He doesn't see pushy accommodations, fancy services honoring the dead long after they've passed, or long times with the family discussing everything that's going on here and there without taking care of the needs of the world as well. Jesus envisions a future that is very difficult for us to predict because it's a future that God is creating every day, new and fresh, and in some ways so much better than we can even imagine. But this doesn't mean that there's nothing for followers of Jesus to do. We, can build the kingdom, we can't build the kingdom of God by our own efforts, but we can build for the kingdom. Every act of justice, every word of truth, every creation of beauty, every act of sacrificial love will be reaffirmed in the kingdom of God, writes N.T. Wright. All of these are solid next steps. These acts don't have to be shocking in order to be significant. A cup of coffee given in gentleness to someone in need, a day of work done honestly, and deliberately and with the best intentions in mind, whatever one's vocation may be. The prayer that comes from the heart and mind together says, right, all these and many more are building blocks for God's kingdom. I see those building blocks going on around the world in the various Christian denominations, even in the United Methodist Church, struggling though we may be with some issues right now. And yes, right here at Human First, it's certainly building the kingdom of God to support a camp where 50 young people and leaders and counselors and several of our own get to go and celebrate and learn about God in the outdoors for a week. That's the future of the church, and it's the church today. They're here celebrating with us right now. And I tell you, I'd rather have this group of children, adults, young adults, however you want me to call you, I'd love to have them being exuberant in worship and maybe squirming around a bit than a bunch of lackadaisical people who want nothing to do with the faith. They're very welcome in our hearts, and so good to see that at First Church. I see it in the way that we work on renovating the parsonage so that it can be a wonderful home for somebody once again. I see it in the large amount of money that was given to different causes around the world through Encore, um, to given to Amberley's Place, even to Hanson House. This congregation works on building God's kingdom every day. And when we come together to learn about that word that we might carry it out better, through Bible studies during the week, through being here on Sundays, through the time we take just to talk to one another. Yes, that building is taking place right here, right now. And even though we can't predict it, sometimes that's a good thing. Did we really think a few years ago we'd be offering worship services online the way that we do? And we might not like how we get there, but it's such a joy to have our Zoom worshipers with us as well. The world is an expanding place even now. The disciples 2,000 years ago couldn't have imagined that. And we can't even imagine it today as we continue to grow. Looking to the future, we followers of Jesus often fail to see what Jesus desires for us. Like James and John, we assume that Jesus wants us to destroy those who stand against us or disrespect us. Like the three potential followers, we can't even envision that discipleship might disrupt our normal routines. 
The truth is, though, that these assumptions and predictions are going to cause problems for us unless they're in line with God's desire, with God's coming reign. But if we act in ways that are in response to the words of Jesus, we are adding important building blocks to the coming glory, the coming realization of God's will here on earth and in heaven. So be it.